Um, there's all sorts of behaviors uh, that involve risk or danger or whatever. And that people, whether you're talking about teenagers or whether you're talking about people recreationally using drugs or whether you're talking about people who are seriously addicted, you know, there are ways to enable people to reduce the harms and risks to themselves as well as those around them um, until they might decide to stop doing those uh, activities. Hello, world. Welcome to the Vaping Unplugged podcast. Everything you need to know about vaping and tobacco harm reduction. Welcome, vapers, to Vaping Unplugged, the podcast that explores everything you need to know about vaping and harm reduction. Today, uh, I'm your host, Mariam, and I'm thrilled to have you joined for another exciting episode. Uh, today, a special guest is joining us, someone whose expertise and advocacy have been instrumental in shaping the harm reduction landscape for years. Ethan Nettleman uh, is a scholar, author, uh, a public speaker who dedicated his career to challenging misconceptions and changing the narrative around drug policy, harm reduction, and public health. Um, as the founder and the former executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, Ethan has been at the forefront of the movement advocating for evidence-based approaches that prioritize health. And in today's episode, we'll be diving deep, deep into the topic, which is very often mixed up in the in misconceptions, harm reduction. Uh, while harm reduction strategies have proven to be effective in various contexts, they have faced their share of misconception and skepticism. Um, and we will be exploring those misconceptions on harm reduction in general and showing why it continues to be the vital part, vital approach to addressing the public um, health concerns. Uh, well, first, Ethan, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and let's begin with uh, defining harm reduction. Could you briefly explain what is harm reduction and what is its role in public health policy? Sure, Mariam. Yeah, and it's, it's a pleasure to be on again um, and to be talking with you as well. Um, yeah, I mean, harm reduction essentially is the approach that, well, I mean, let's understand the origins of harm reduction really are 40 years ago in Western Europe, when people first in the Netherlands and then other countries began to realize that people who injected drugs, illegal drugs, were contracting HIV AIDS, and that they weren't getting HIV AIDS from the drugs, and they weren't getting it because they were injecting, they were getting it because they were sharing uh, syringes had been infected by people who had already contracted HIV AIDS. And so the Dutch basically adopted a very pragmatic idea. They said for people who are injecting drugs, obviously we'd like them to quit and to stop using it, but until they're able or ready to stop using it, we need to keep them alive and free from this virus. So on some of the drop-in centers, they would basically have two buckets when you open the door, one to throw your dirty syringes and another one to pick up some clean ones. And so people, it's just a kind of common sense intervention to reduce the spread of HIV AIDS, especially at a moment when there was really no cure for this, you know, horrific epidemic that was really something of a plague in its time. And, and that was the pragmatic side. And then eventually the science began to say that the common sense, in fact, was verified by the science. And so it, and then it grew into a broader philosophy, not just around, you know, sterile needles and and, and AIDS, but into a broader philosophy 
that essentially said, um, there's all sorts of behaviors uh, that involve risk or danger or whatever. And that people, whether you're talking about teenagers or whether you're talking about people recreationally using drugs or whether you're talking about people who are seriously addicted, you know, there are ways to enable people to reduce the harms and risks to themselves as well as those around them um, until they might decide to stop doing those uh, activities. So it wasn't just about, you know, now when people start overdosing from opioids, it's about making the loxone you know, the antidote for an overdose more widely available. You know, it's things like um, if you, you know, ride a bicycle or, or play contact sports wearing a helmet or putting on a seatbelt, right? Um, uh, you know, in order to reduce the possible risks. Uh, and obviously with tobacco, I mean, 20 years ago, there weren't that many alternatives apart from oral tobacco, the snus that they were using in Sweden, which was showing some success in getting people to stop smoking. Um, but now with the advent of e-cigarettes and heated tobacco products, and now not just snus, but nicotine pouches, these are all ways when people, you know, they, they are using nicotine, they're addicted to nicotine, they enjoy nicotine, whatever the reason may be. But if you keep smoking, as we all know, you know, that could definitely shorten your life, especially if you keep doing it into your after the age of 35 or 40. Um, you know, it's just a common sense thing to reduce the harms associated with nicotine consumption, um, maybe. And you and one might eventually become abstinent or one might keep doing these things in the same way that people switch from heroin to methanol. And some people stay on methanol for years or decades. And, you know, the risk to your health for methanol is dramatically less than they are from using street heroin or even switching from street heroin to pure heroin. You know, the programs they have around Europe and Canada now where people have been addicted to street heroin for many years and are unable to quit and have tried everything, tried methanol, tried buprenorphine, tried drug free programs. But, you know, now if you instead go to a clinic and get, you know, pharmaceutical grade heroin, you know, you can live a long life because there's a radical difference between the risks associated with street heroin of unknown potency and purity and the risks associated with pharmaceutical heroin, which basically becomes like morphine in the body. So that's the essence of harm reduction. And, you know, the big it's, it's actually gained more and more acceptance in the world of illicit drug policy, where it's embraced by the World Health Organization, by the United Nations um, and by probably a majority of governments all around the world now to one degree or another. Um, but unfortunately, in the tobacco nicotine field, it has continued to face resistance in all but a handful of countries. This is exactly what I wanted to ask you. Like the way you're describing harm reduction, um, it's clear that there is nothing wrong with it. But then there is so much misconception about tobacco harm reduction out there. And could you tell us a little bit more about how these misconceptions affected public perception and public policy in the world? Well, there's a few things, right? I mean, first of all, you have a moralistic argument, right? That, you know, by providing clean needles to people, you're enabling them to keep shooting drugs illegally, right? Or, or, or by providing, you know, uh, uh, nicotine in non-combustible forms, you're enabling them to keep taking these drugs, which are still going to be somewhat dangerous, right? Um, so, so you have a moralistic argument that says taking that drug in and of itself is immoral, right? No matter what the form, 
right? I mean, so so that's that's one piece of it, right? Then there's a second piece which says, well, if you if you if you enable if you provide harm reduction forms of a drug or a way of taking a drug, that'll result in more people using it, right? Um, and and there may be some truth to that, right? I mean, you know, or or, or you know, there was um um. You know, a hundred years ago, there were debates in some governments about whether or not you should provide the soldiers with condoms because they knew that soldiers would be going to sex workers when they were having their, you know, their their break from the war. And and people would say, well, why do you want to encourage, you know, people going to sex workers and having and having, you know, to prostitutes? It's immoral. And, this, you know, the more rational people said, look, these are young men. They're going to do what they're going to do. Let's prevent the spread of sexually transmitted diseases because we're fighting a war and we have to stop that. That's got to be the priority. There were people who actually objected to things like seatbelt laws because they said people will drive faster. Right. And people said, well, OK, maybe some people will drive faster. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the benefits of reducing, you know, injuries and fatalities from seatbelts so much, you know, it exceeds that. There were people who said if you provide clean needles, more people will use, you know, uh, inject drugs or 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 or, you know, not stop, you know, because it's an option. And there may be some there may be a little bit of truth to that, that people are more likely to engage in something or to keep doing something because because they know it's not as dangerous as before. But oftentimes that risk doesn't even turn out to be true, but even where it is true, the advantages of people, people keeping people from getting sick or dying is so much greater in that case. And so, you know, so, so I think what happened now, the third thing is, but if you do that, it sends the wrong message to kids or it makes it more likely kids will get into it. Right. And I have to tell you in the United States, and I know other countries as well, you know, when we would wanted to do, you know, legalized marijuana for medical purposes and people would say, what about the kids? Right. And then we wanted to legalize marijuana more broadly for adults. What about the kids? You know, we wanted to make a legalized needle exchange program to AIDS. What about the kids? I remember the governor of New Jersey. You know, that was her big argument. Right. Um, and 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 obviously now with tobacco, you know, the fact that and this made it really difficult that so many young people, especially in the U.S., started using e-cigarettes really freaked people out because, you know, these were kids, not just kids who had been smoking cigarettes, but kids who had never smoked cigarettes or would never try cigarettes. Right now, the fact of the matter is the argument against harm reduction about kids, it was mostly bullshit when it came to illicit drugs. Right. I mean, the fact of the matter is making marijuana illegal for adults did nothing to reduce the availability of young people. I mean, for the last 50 years, it's always been young people who had the best access, you know, to marijuana, you know, even though it was illegal for everybody. Right. And even when we legalized marijuana, began legalizing marijuana in the United States, you know, it, you know, the big increase in use was among people my age and older. Right. It was not among young people because they already had good access. There's virtually no evidence that making needles legal or making naloxone, the, the antidote for an overdose available, has increased drug use. Now, with with e-cigarettes, especially e-cigarettes, more than the heat not burn devices and more than the, the pouches and every, you know, the nicotine pouches, you know, you actually did have when Juul came along, you know, and the Juul both foolishly, you know, did some advertising and promoting that appealed to young people. Um, so that was dumb on their part. 
Um, although I, I also suspect that it would have it might it would have taken off among young people anyway, even if they had not advertised. Right. But then when Jewel did that, you know, and then it became enormously popular in the U.S., a lot of parents, especially white middle and upper middle class parents, you know, who didn't smoke cigarettes, didn't know anybody who smoked, or at least they didn't think they knew anybody who smoked. Probably, you know, working class people who worked for them might smoke cigarettes, but they would not see it, you know, going on. You know, the parents flipped out. And so you had this whole huge hysteria around what about the kids? What about the kids? What about the kids? And therefore, we have to ban e-cigarettes or at least flavored e-cigarettes, um, you know, because this is appealing to the young. I think the last source of resistance, and this is the one that is particular to this tobacco area, is the role of big tobacco. I mean, big tobacco, you know, is an under, you know, it, it, you know, it's probably, you know, in the in the 20th century and into the 21st was certainly the most venal industry, maybe the most venal industry of all legal industries in the world. Right. I mean, for all their promotion of cigarettes and all of that. So everybody hates big tobacco and has some good reason to hate big tobacco and all their lying and obfuscating and promoting their products and all this sort of stuff. And when e-cigarettes came along, um, you know, basically, initially, big tobacco kind of looked down their noses. I mean, it was being, you know, Chinese manufacturers and vape producers in you know Europe and the U.S. and things like that. But eventually, big tobacco began to increasingly dominate this area to the point where they are now the principal producers of these non-combustible you know, forms of nicotine. So on the one hand, it's a very good thing that some of these big tobacco companies, most notably Philip Morris International, is making a pretty serious commitment to shift from combustible cigarettes to you know, non-combustible forms of nicotine. But the fact that they are the ones who are going to benefit financially from this and that it's in their interest to have as many people as possible, you know, using nicotine products, um, you know, and not just smokers, but even other people. So what that means is that it's association of tobacco harm reduction with big tobacco has just been a massive, massive obstacle, a massive obstacle. And the fact that you know, and the sad thing, of course, my argument also is, you know, you had some, in, you know, all the little guys producing their little vape devices and such, they're being pushed out of business by big tobacco and by things like the Food and Drug Administration making regulations and demands that the little guys can't do. And meanwhile, big tobacco bought Juul, right? It recently, Altria bought Enjoy, which is one of the biggest, one of the biggest, was one of the, I think, the last of the big independent e-cigarette companies. And now you see Philip Morris International looks like it's buying Swedish Match, which is the producer of Snus. So you're, we're losing the kind of, you know, you, you, you kind of wanted to have, you wanted to have companies like, the, the role that Tesla plays in terms of moving, you know, drivers from, from cars that use gasoline to electric cars and Tesla presented a major challenge to the company, big, the big car companies that were relying on selling companies that use gasoline, right? And if Tesla had been bought by a big auto company, you know, then the big auto company would still be moving to electronic vehicles, but not so quickly. Not, they have a challenge. And the problem you have in this field is that, you know, I mean, ultimately, we want the big tobacco companies to, you know, and consumers to move from cigarettes to non-combustible forms. And and it's unfortunate that the government policies, rather than encouraging, um, 
you know, Tesla-like companies in this are, are, are effectively encouraging big tobacco to take them over, which is in big tobacco's interest. So those are all the obstacles. And I will say that, you know, as we've gained all this ground with harm reduction in the illicit drug area, and people are even talking about harm reduction, not just with opioids, but even with cannabis and with psychedelics, you know, we still face this major resistance in my country and so many others to employing the same philosophical public health notion when it comes to nicotine. Great. Just like you mentioned, the kids are a very important argument against vaping right now. And this notion, this very popular notion that you should start banning things for adults because kids are getting into it. This is very popular right now. And um, I just wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about this argument, um, why parents are so concerned about this, and a little bit also about the real causes of addiction, and if there is anything that can be done against it on the, on the public policy level. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I have to tell you, I mean, it's really frustrating to me because in all my decades, you know, before, during and after drug with Drug Policy Alliance and, you know, and playing a leading role and, you know, I mean, drug policy reform was really three main issues, right? One third of our work was ending cannabis prohibition, first for medical and then more broadly for adults. And the second third of the work was ending the role of the drug war in mass incarceration in the United States. And the last third, was basically treating drug use uh, and drug misuse as a health issue, not a criminal issue. So harm reduction, drug treatment, all of those sorts of things, both with addicts and with young people and recreational users, what have you. And what I'll say is, you know, you know, I was able to build up a lot of political alliances, especially with Democrats and people on the left part of the spectrum, and also crucially with some people on the right. But what's happened is many of my allies, you know, the American politicians and foreign politicians who were very, became very supportive of us on, you know, needle exchange programs, overdose prevention, legalizing marijuana, what have you. They've been leading the charge against tobacco harm reduction. And part of it is that it's about big tobacco. Part of it is people have embraced an abstinence only ideology with nicotine like the one they have typically had with respect to illicit drugs. But, you know, we've, we've chipped away at that with illicit drugs, but it's now gone over, it's now on, on the whole nicotine thing. And part of it is, I think, in the United States, the association between drug policy reform and racial justice became very important in recent years. And there's not a major racial justice dimension to tobacco harm reduction. There's some elements, but not a big element of it, right? So I think that was, I think that was one part of it. I think that, you know, as I said before, you know, you're dealing with a generation of middle and upper middle class parents who, by and large, don't smoke and never smoked. Or if they have, they haven't done it since they played around with it when they, when they were young. And they don't really know people. And they see kids taking this thing up and, and, and it freaks them out. And, and they just want their kids to stop vaping. And they want to ban it. And if it means that other people can't vape, they don't really know that many people who vape. They don't know other adults who vape really, right? Because vaping is done more by, by middle and lower middle class white Americans. And it's done by, you know, the whole smoking thing. And the vaping thing is, you know, it's, it's not so much present in the adult upper middle class white and black. And, a, you know, it's not a common thing. So it's seen as an alien scaring thing. Now, the other problem you have 
is that there are a lot of widely held misconceptions. So, you know, you and I know, and I'm sure our listeners know, you know, that e-cigarettes are probably 85 to 95 percent less dangerous than cigarettes and that things like snus and the, uh, the nicotine pouches are even, you know, maybe 98 percent less dangerous. Right. We now have decades of evidence out of Sweden where you, in fact, do have young people using snus who never smoked. Right. And people started to freak out about it. But you now have studies of people who have been doing this for, you know, one or two decades or more and seeing virtually no difference between the health of SNUS users and people who don't use SNUS, right? But what's amazing is the large majority of people in my country, and even in a place like the United Kingdom, which is one of the few countries which has a good policy on tobacco harm reduction, the majority of people believe that vaping is as or more dangerous than smoking. The majority of people believe that nicotine is what causes cancer, even though nicotine basically does not cause cancer. It comes from the combustion of consuming cigarettes, right? And a majority of people believe we had this thing in America back in 2019, right before, uh, right before the pandemic with COVID, we had an epidemic with what was called E-Valley, which is when people were vaping and landing up in the hospital and about 50 or 60 people died and thousands landed up in the hospital because their lungs were getting splattered with something. Well, it rapidly became apparent that this had nothing to do with e-cigarettes or vaping nicotine. It had entirely to do with some knuckleheads who were producing, you know, uh, illegal THC cartridges and using vitamin E acetate to kind of cut the THC in order to make more money. And, and as soon as that stopped, the thing went away. But it turns out most Americans also believe that that was about nicotine, right? Not about illegally produced THC cartridges. So you have this massive ignorance and not just among people, the ordinary public who doesn't smoke, you have the same ignorance, right? Believing something that's totally opposite of what's true also among smokers and also among doctors. I mean, that's what's so horrifying, that doctors don't even know the evidence, right? And that the government does not seem to see itself as having an obligation to educate the public. So I'll tell you, there's a wonderful gathering twice a year called the E-Cigarette Summit. It's in London each November, and, and it's in Washington, D.C. each May. And an amazing woman out of the UK named Amanda Strange who organizes this thing. So I was just down in D.C. a few days ago at the E-Cigarette Summit, right? And, and there's these great academics and there's some of the activists, um, um, you know, who are there. And, uh, and, and then they had the people from the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, who showed up. It was good that they showed up to speak to an audience that they knew would be mostly hostile or critical of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. But I have to tell you, Miriam, it was so almost, I was almost embarrassed for them. And the guy who heads the tobacco unit, a guy named Brian King, right? And he ends his talk. Somebody said to him, I mean, we know, you know, we know that switching from smoking to vaping can save huge numbers of lives in older smokers. And we also have good reason to believe that the risk to young people, you know, nobody wants young people vaping, but the risks appear to be not all that substantial, right? I mean, there are so many other things like, you know, binge drinking or developing terrible relationship with food and, and junk food and, or, you know, or texting all the time when you're driving or, I mean, you know, and that, you know, vaping is not going to rank among 
you know, the top five or 10 concerns of any adult who really knows the science. And Brian King, the head of the CDC, who was trying to give a somewhat reasonable talk about harm reduction and the quote unquote continuum of harm, you know, that you want to reduce the harms associated with nicotine consumption. He finishes off and he felt compelled to say that basically, well, no amount of adolescent vaping is acceptable. And basically confirm that if, you know, given a choice between, you know, you know, um, young people, you know, vaping and using this and some getting dependent um, or, you know, saving the lives of hundreds of thousands of adults. Well, basically, fuck the adults, you know, um, you know, I mean, that trade off, you know, and, and, and the reason is, is because as with the war on drugs, the hysteria around young people, the craziness, and the fact that upper middle class parents are the most powerful of parents, right? And so it's just, you know, he knows that if he had sounded anything, said anything reasonable, you know, then he would have taken hell from people in the White House, from people in Congress and the media. And it, I mean, I almost sit there and you're watching these people testify I literally could imagine myself, it would be like watching people in the old Soviet regime having to testify in a public health issue. If the ideology was saying something else, then you had to obfuscate and lie and whatever, because you knew that telling the truth was going to be risky to your job and your political well-being and your future. And they therefore, I mean, I I literally, I was going to ask a provocative question from the audience, um, you know, to some of his underlings who spoke later in the day. And I just felt so... I felt sorry for them that they knew they could not tell the truth, that they needed to stand up there and lie and dissemble, just as you would accept from people who would do the same thing, you know, if they were speaking in a, you know, in a, in a non-democratic, you know, um, uh, government. So, yeah. Well, that's very interesting. And, um, well, let's assume that politicians worry so much about kids getting hooked up on vapes or um, kids starting smoking cannabis and they feel like they have to do something, right? What do you think should be the right approach if they have to do something about it? What should, and well, we you know, know that- I keep, I keep asking right. myself, like, I mean, obviously we were, you know, enormously successful in the United States with the movement to end marijuana prohibition, right? And, 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 and we were moderately successful in terms of advancing harm reduction with other drugs and also with reducing the number of people locked up on drug charges, right? There's still a long way to go, but we've come a long way from where we were. And I'm trying to ask myself, so what did we do right there? You know, now, I mean, I have to say the first thing, um, and we, you know, fortunately, we did, it's a different problem because the problem of big tobacco being involved in this, that they're in it, they basically own it. You know, most of the things that people vape now are being produced by big tobacco companies. Um, you know, that's an enormous obstacle, right? Because the, the, the hatred of big tobacco is so great, right? Um, so I will say that, that you know, so that's a, a unique obstacle. On the other hand, People know they, they, on some level, they, you know, it's not like injecting heroin or smoking crack cocaine or things like that. And we've been enormously successful in cannabis. So obviously getting out the accurate information is pivotally important. But one of the problems here is that there is no independent philanthropic funding 
The only funding for tobacco harm reduction right now is coming from the industry, right? Either directly or through the foundations that they're supporting, right? There are no, you know, whereas when I, you know, I started speaking about drug policy reform in the late 80s at the height of the drug war, and people thought I was as, you know, crazy and as people now think, people now think with tobacco harm reduction. But then I was very lucky, you know, in 1992, 30 years ago, 31 years ago, I got a phone call out of the blue from a billionaire named George Soros, who was not famous then, but eventually did become famous. And, you know, we established a partnership where he landed up as given, I think, over the last 30 years, hundreds of millions of dollars to advance drug policy reform, roll back the drug war, advance harm reduction with illicit drugs. And then, and then I was able to get persuade other wealthy people to begin to support this. And then eventually some of the big foundations, which are tend to be a little more cautious than the, than the wealthy men, right? They began to support it. But nothing like this has emerged in the tobacco harm reduction space. So the money is all coming from big tobacco, directly or indirectly. As soon as people take that money, even though they may be the most ethical re researchers in the world, even though they may be vaping users, consumer activists, for whom this is saving their lives or lives of family members, immediately this massively funded anti-tobacco harm reduction machinery funded with hundreds of millions of dollars from Michael Bloomberg and supported by World Health Organization and U.S. government and most other governments immediately is, is, is casting aspersions on the character of the activists and the academics. I mean, it's a despicable thing that they're engaged in right now. You know, and so, you know, that absence of, of, of on the one end, the absence of independent funding in the way that George Soros was with regard to uh, drug policy reform and illicit drug harm reduction has really, I've, I've made an effort to try to see if I could raise that money, but I don't know where to, you know, I, I'm not able to, and nobody else has been successful. And then the fact that Michael Bloomberg, one of the richest men in the world, not just in the US, but in the world, that he has put hundreds of millions of dollars. He did a lot of good with his money in terms of kind of pushing against smoking, but now that he's focused on anti-vaping stuff, I mean, he's undoing and maybe even over, in fact, probably doing far more harm now than all the good he did with his anti-smoking stuff. And he's listening to the wrong people on this stuff, you know. And, and look, you look at also the World Health Organization, which has embraced harm reduction with illicit drugs, but, you know, has taken a radically anti-scientific position with respect to tobacco and nicotine. And then you look at the fact that Michael Bloomberg, I believe, has given $100 million to the foundation associated with the World Health Organization and is the WHO ambassador for noncommunicable diseases. And then you look at his money is also going to the United States Agency, the Center for Disease Control, their foundation. Right. So you see, you know, money corrupting this area in a dramatic way with an ideological anti-vaping campaign. And people are all screaming because somebody gets a tiny bit of money from a big tobacco company to advance the science, right? And that's, you know, seen as a terrible thing. Whereas meanwhile, this horrifically corrupting money is coming from private foundation like and Bloomberg and government. So it's, you know, it's not a fair fight right now. It really isn't. I think Look, we have to keep putting out the information there. That that's that's absolutely essential. We have to keep putting out pressure. I think, you know, the with the activists, I mean you have some wonderful vaping activists. I was just in Bogota, Colombia last month for the first or second meeting ever of, of tobacco harm reduction activists from all around Latin America, 
right? And I've been at meetings in Europe with some of these activists as well. And it's, you know, really people fighting the good fight for the right reasons. Um, it reminds me so much of the people who were, who were fighting for needle exchange and other illicit drug harm reduction. But, you know, there's no funding in order to build those organizations up. You know, you either take no funding, in which case from big tobacco, in which case you can only have so much reach, or you take their funding and instantly your opponents are attacking you for taking the funding. But it has to, I, I think there needs to be more and more vigorous um, advocacy. You know, I'm part of a group in the U.S. that mostly academics. And the question is, you know, when good things come, you know, when the Cochrane review comes out showing that tobacco harm reduction, more and more evidence supports it. When you get major articles in Science or Lancet or other major publications showing the evidence for harm reduction. When you have, you know, recently an article was orchestrated where, where most of the majority of the past presidents of the leading tobacco and nicotine research organization in America, SRNT, you know, smoking and nicotine um, research, whatever it's called, you know, published a, a letter saying that tobacco arm reduction needs to be part of discussion. But the power on the other side of the major advocacy group, the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids and others, and the fact that they're in bed with government. I mean, I even see, you look at the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is a very politicized research funding agency, providing most of the funding for drug research in the world. And as the politics shifted on marijuana, the director of that agency, Nora Volkow, you know, stopped being so aggressively anti-marijuana but the anti-marijuana folks have now become anti-nicotine vaping people, sometimes the same people, and using the same arguments with no more credibility than they had before. Well, we beat them on marijuana, and ultimately we'll beat them on tobacco and nicotine, but it's definitely not a fair fight right now. And, and you know, I mean, I mean, the last thing I'll say about this is, you know, uh, my own politics are somewhat, you know, left of center, you know, not, not radically left, but, you know, left, center, left, right? And I look at this in historical context. And a hundred years ago, there was a very increasingly powerful progressive movement in America, right? And they were the ones who led the effort, you know, in terms of allowing women to vote. And the ones who led the effort in terms of having our U.S. senators be directly elected by the people rather than indirectly by state legislatures. And they led the effort on child labor protection laws. And then it led the effort on improving the quality and regulation of food and drugs. Right. I mean, they led the effort on allowing unions to be able to unionize to fight these terribly exploitative conditions. Right. But they got one big thing wrong. Right which was alcohol prohibition. They supported alcohol prohibition, right? Thinking it was also part of the progressive thing. Well, today, I think the left of center people are mostly right on things like, you know, access to the right to vote in the United States and on things like climate change and on things like, you know, the, the proper roles of public health and, 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 and on a lot of taxation issues and a whole range of things. But they're getting one, and on drug policy reform. But they're getting one great big thing wrong, which is tobacco harm reduction. They're just as wrong as progressives were 100 years ago in supporting alcohol prohibition. And one day they'll recognize it. But the sad thing is, is that hundreds of thousands of people and millions around the world will die unnecessarily, prematurely, because the progressives have their head up their ass on this issue right now and for the foreseeable future. I agree 
with absolutely everything you said. And this brings us to my last question, actually. With so much opposition to vaping and um, so many organizations fighting against vaping, in your opinion, is there anything that consumers can do to influence this kind of political decisions? Or what can organizations do to promote harm reduction and combat I mean, this Mary, my view is there's a lot. I mean, because ultimately, uh, the number one most important thing that a consumer can do is to become as educated about the issue as possible. The more you know, knowledge is power. When you have the facts at your fingertips, when you've thought about all the arguments, when you've considered all of the opposition's arguments and you've thought about the best way to respond. And there's obviously, you know, you can look at the Global State of Harm Reduction Report, you know, that's put together by, by Jerry Stimson's organization. You can look at the e-cigarette summits. You can look, there's a whole range of really good information out there. So it's, it's and with the internet, it's, 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 it's very easy to access all this stuff. Right. So so I think that becoming as knowledgeable as possible is the first thing. Knowledge is power. The second thing is, is to not be shy. Any individual, especially in a democratic country, but even in some less democratic countries, you know, there's nothing that stops you from trying to make an appointment to go see your legislator, to go see the member of the city council or the state legislature. Now, you can make the art, you can pound, you can make the door, you can bring people with you. But, you know, you and you know what else? You can also do things like if you have talk radio, you can call talk radio. You know, you can write a letter to the local newspaper or the little online media thing. Right. I mean, there are all sorts of things that one can do because a dedicated individual activist can do a lot. I know people who were just producing hundreds of letters to editors of media publications who were who would be calling their politicians, calling the radio shows, just doing that sort of thing. Anybody can do that, certainly in a democracy and even in, as I said, in non-democratic countries. The third thing is to realize that your efficacy as an advocate, if you have the knowledge and if you can overcome the inhibitions to doing so, because many people are shy or they're intimidated, right? The third thing is to understand that how you communicate something makes a big difference. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, I always found that to the extent that people like you personally or don't feel scared of you, they're more likely to listen to you. To the extent that you can you make your arguments and use humor about it, to the extent you can just use reason, right? To the extent that you can, you know, I mean, you know, accept and, and you know, you know, I don't know, you know, there's when you think about couples relationships, when you think about how to communicate most effectively in relationships, you know, we know that listening deeply to the other person listening deeply and then affirming the other person's concerns. And this is true whether you're talking about a love relationship or a parental child relationship or whether you're talking about a work relationship or whether you're talking about advocacy so that your opponents feel heard, so that you acknowledge their affairs and concerns around their children, around vaping, around what does this mean, that that makes one into a better advocate provided you have the knowledge, right? So, so uh, you know, then the fourth thing, is I know in every advocacy movement, people, you know, I sometimes say when you're in an advocacy movement, the people you hate the most are your fellow allies. 
right? Because they're the ones you fight with. You fight with them over funding and credit and strategy and tactics and boyfriends and girlfriends and all this sort of stuff. Whereas your opponents are more an abstraction. They are out there, right? They're kind of, you don't, you don't break bread with them. But my view is we have to, A, find ways if they're willing to, to break bread, to sit down, you know, even with some of the people I'd have the fiercest debates with, but I then have a drink with them afterwards. I'd have a dinner with them afterwards. You know, you still find ways to have a human relationship and ask about their kids or, or, or whatever, you know, even if you feel that they're ultimately killing people, you still find a way to have that human relationship. And then with your allies, you have to keep, you know, as Martin Luther King said, you know, keep your eye on the prize, no matter there, there was a, there was a fellow involved in the marijuana reform movement, you know, who was really an asshole, you know, but the way I would describe him is I'd say he's an asshole, but he's our asshole because he's fighting for the same thing. So we'd find a way to keep working together toward the same end, even though I don't really want to spend a lot of time with him. Right. So it's about keeping that stuff in mind. Right. And I think you put that stuff together. I have to tell you, you look around the history of drug policy reform, whether you're talking about marijuana, medical marijuana, you're talking about harm reduction, talking about sentencing reform, the U.S., talking about Europe. I can tell you, it's amazing where the activism comes from. I mean, there are some countries where the way methanol got introduced was when the mothers of the heroin addicts mobilized and marched on the local parliament, right? Saying, my son needs this medicine, you know, the hell with your prejudices, that's, you know, so individuals can make a big difference, you know, and I think, you know, and they have to care, you know, don't wait until this stuff, until people are going to jail because people are going to jail sometimes and people will start, you know, as this, you know, criminalization of tobacco gets further and further along, I'm worried not just about the lack of harm reduction. I'm worried about cigarettes ultimately being criminalized the way that cannabis is bun or heroin or cocaine. I mean, they're, you know, they're talking in some countries about taking the nicotine out of cigarettes or reducing it so low that they're not even cigarettes anymore. Well, that's going to generate a black market. That's going to generate people going to jail. So let's try to prevent that from happening, because that could be a real nightmare on a human rights level and on a broader societal level. Thank you, Ethan. We can we can end this on this uh, positive note. And I truly agree that it takes one or two dedicated activists to change big things in the world. We've seen many examples of that in the world. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. And I hope I hope with this podcast and with this discussion, we can motivate some of uh, the vaping activists that are out there watching us. And I, I hope so too, Mariam. Well, listen, good luck for you also first in Georgia and then more broadly in the region and globally. And, and thank you so much for inviting me and for the work that you guys are doing on this. I really do appreciate that. It makes a difference. Thank you, Aaron. It's a, It was a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. And um, for those of you who are watching us right now, um, join us next time on Vaping Unplugged as we continue to explore fascinating world of vaping. And um, until then, vape on. Bye-bye.